from University of Puget Sound, it's What We Do. Hello, welcome to the first installment of a new weekly podcast here at the University of Puget Sound that we are calling What We Do. In it, you'll be hearing faculty, students, alumni, and invited speakers talking about everything from classics to computer science, from physics to philosophy, from art to adventure. I'm Chuck Luce, the editor of Arches, the Puget Sound Alumni Magazine, and I'll be getting things started. With us today are Mike Purdy, a 1976 Puget Sound graduate who is a presidential historian and founder of presidenthistory.com. Mike also earned his MBA at UPS in 1979. And Michael Artime, a visiting assistant professor of politics and government at Pacific Lutheran University. He holds a PhD in political science from the University of Missouri. Mr. Purdy and Artime have been leading a very popular series of lectures on campus, offering analyses and historical insights into the 2016 campaign. Today, with election day coming up fast, they're going to talk with us about how unprecedented this election is and whether it represents a permanent shift in how party politics will work in this country going forward. You'll also hear their thoughts on the rise of post-truth and niche media, why anti-establishment candidates are riding a wave of popularity, and why it will be very hard for Hillary Clinton to blow the election. Mr. Purdy gets things going. Um, this year is a really, really important election. It's the most important election ever, but this year is really true. I mean, it's true in ways that other years have not been true. Um, and I think mainly it's been because this is such an unprecedented year. I mean, you, you look at all sorts of things. There's so many things that have never happened before. Um, and, and I think the place where I would start probably is looking at the rhetoric of this election. Um, and it, it's primarily what Donald Trump has said, that he, he probably has the most unfiltered rhetoric of any candidate we've ever seen. I mean, candidates in the past have said bad things about one another, but not to this level. Um, so, so that's been a, a, a big unprecedented piece. And, and another really large unprecedented piece, I think, has been given some of the dynamics with Donald Trump, you've got the Republican Party, major portions of it, essentially deserting him. And, um, and, and we just haven't seen that kind of thing. We, we are also seeing newspaper endorsements, uh, newspapers that for a hundred years or more have never endorsed a Democratic candidate are endorsing Hillary Clinton. And uh, that, that's just never happened. Uh, the Arizona Republic, the Dallas Morning News, I mean, lots of newspapers. So of the largest 100 newspapers in the country, uh, the last statistic that I saw is that Hillary Clinton had 54 endorsements. Donald Trump had one. So he got his most recent one from uh, the Las Vegas newspaper just the other day. But the interesting thing about the Las Vegas paper is it's owned by a guy named Sheldon Adelson. And, and Michael, tell us about Sheldon Adelson. Well, he's uh, the Las Vegas casino magnate who um, is Donald Trump's number one contributor right now. So, you know, it's it's not particularly a surprise that that would be uh, the one uh, the one newspaper that would be uh, endorsing him right now, or the one major newspaper. There's some small newspapers as well. Um, I would piggyback on what you said in that, in terms of um, the party's role in this, in, in the past 
handful of years, one of the assumptions in political science, at least, is that the party matters a lot. There's a book that is very influential called The Party Decides, and it makes the argument that parties, through things like endorsements, decide who the nominee of the major parties um, is going to be. And that certainly wasn't the case, at least uh, on the Republican side. You know, Donald Trump did not have the the majority of endorsements from the Republican field. Now, I think there's a question, you know, is this is this a sign that the party apparatus is falling apart and no longer as influential as it once was? Or is this a byproduct of Donald Trump being unique from every other candidate that that we've seen before? I mean, he has 100% name recognition going into the nominating contest. Everybody knows who he is. He doesn't need the party um, to, you know, kind of give him recognition in, in the public. And he also gets lots of free media. So what we saw is he out, you know, he outdid every other candidate in terms of what is called earned media, the amount of time that you're on television for free, um, essentially. He had no trouble um, getting on attention. You know, he could say something, you know, crazy in the afternoon, and he would be on television all evening. And so I, I don't know whether this election, I, I, I certainly think it's unique. I think the question is whether this is, um, whether this election marks some shift right. in American um, electoral politics. Yeah, and I, I think you raise a lot of good points there that, you know, w the role of political parties. So partly political parties are less powerful today than they used to be because of fundraising. So before the political parties would be the ones who raised all the money for the candidates. And now you have super PACs, which Michael can talk about super PACs and, and the impact of those. And um, the other reason why political parties are less influential now is the rise of the primary and caucus system, which really didn't start big time until the early 1970s. Uh, prior to that, you only had maximum of 20 primaries and most of the decisions were made by key party officials in you know, the classic smoke-filled room. And, um, and so it's kind of a combination there. But now everything is becoming so much more democratic and there's the expectation of the people that um, the nominee of the party is gonna be chosen by the people as opposed to by the party. But the fundraising has been a, a huge shift too. Yeah, um, so in, in the... Um in the nominating contests, um, you know, Donald Trump didn't, be, because of things like his advantage in earned media, he didn't have to raise um, nearly as much money as, as some of the other candidates in order to stay competitive. Plus, you know, one of the reasons you run lots of advertisements is so that people know who you are. And again, everybody already knew, um, knew who he was. And so we saw that, that Money, which is normally a pretty good indicator of whether um, a candidate is going to be successful or not, money didn't seem to matter quite as much. Jeb Bush raised a lot of money, and it didn't seem like he could spend his way to 10 15% in some states. And so, you know, I think that is an incredible uh, piece of this as well. Again, I don't know if that is, you know, a sign that. You know, there's no reason to be concerned about campaign finance issues because you can spend as much as you want and that doesn't mean that you win. I don't know if we can go that far. Um, I think that there might be something unique again about this this election. Right. So in addition to Trump's name recognition, uh, the other thing that's really unique about this election, I think, is the use of social media. So Donald Trump is a master of social media. Um, 
you know, you could say that Franklin Roosevelt was the first radio president. John F. Kennedy was the first television president. Donald Trump is the first real social media Twitter presidential candidate. And um, he has made very effective use of it. He says that, you know, having Twitter is like having your own newspaper. And he's got, you know, 12 million subscribers to his newspaper. And he gets to say whatever he wants, which ties into this other unprecedented thing. And that is we are kind of experiencing a, a post-truth moment um, in presidential elections where truth doesn't really matter as much. Uh, so you can say whatever you want. Um, or there is niche media, so not social, me not uh, mainstream media, uh, that we have traditionally been independent, fair reporting, but you've got the rise of um, internet websites like Breitbart, or you have uh, Fox News, um, and, and these are um, news sources that kind of just have one particular focus. Uh, so that's had an impact as well. And, and you've got a, a a base of the voting population that um, don't really want to necessarily know the truth. They are frustrated, and so they will listen to whatever narrative a candidate is stringing together, and I think that's what's happening in this case. Yeah, uh, um, I heard a commentator say recently that um, after the election, there's going to be some point where Donald Trump looks a reporter in the eyes and says, <laughs> I never ran for president. Yes. <laughs> I so I, I think that um, in part, again, I don't know whether this, you know, is unique to Trump. He's an entertainer. I don't know if people have a different standard for that. Part of this might be um, different expectations. And, and I do think that in this election, you've seen... Hillary Clinton treated differently um, than Donald Trump in that respect. I think that he can get away with far more um, untruthfulness than than she can. And, and, and part of that is, I think, related to just the personalities of the candidates. I mean, Hillary Clinton is a, uh, a policy wonk, uh, very much tied into, you know, the nuts and bolts of governing. Uh, Donald Trump, as Michael said, is an entertainer. And Donald Trump, by his personality, um, has a difficult time saying that uh, he was wrong uh, about anything. Uh, by his own admission, you know, he says that. And so uh, he can string together uh, various statements and he simply um, keeps going. So there's been a lot of uh, discussion in this campaign about the fact that you've got really very anti-establishment candidates. Uh, on the left, you have Bernie Sanders, and on the uh, right, you have Donald Trump, and they're both running as anti-establishment candidates. And so we could take a look at what are some of the reasons for that, right? So I, I think there's a couple of factors that go into that. I, I think that people are frustrated by um, the fact that change doesn't ever seem to happen. And so they say, let's burn down everything and, and let's get a radical like Bernie Sanders or a radical like Donald Trump, a populist, uh, bring somebody in. And, and in some ways, I mean, there's been a lot of commentary about this, and I think it's got a lot of truth to it, that the Republican Party in some ways has brought Donald Trump on themselves by the fact that when Barack Obama was uh, inaugurated as president, uh, a number of key Republicans in Congress got together and said, um, our strategy for the next four years or eight years is going to be to 
uh, block anything and everything that Obama wants to do. So what happened? We had Washington gridlock. And so now you got a bunch of people saying, Washington is gridlocked. We got to do something about it. We, we got to change it. Um, yeah, I think that that's, um, I think that's exactly right. I think that um, part of the problem um, also relates to, you know, the constituents, the, the voters. Um, so what we've seen um, in polling data is that people are more partisan today than they once were, particularly those people that do pay a lot of attention to politics. And I think they want two competing things. They want ideological purity then. They, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who, you know, don't want compromise because they want they want the most conservative policies possible, the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party. You also see lots of liberals on the Democratic side don't think the party is liberal enough. Um, well, at times, you know, if you if you only want those extreme outcomes, you want the most conservative policies or you want the most liberal policies, then you can't be upset when things don't get done because pushing for those policies necessarily drives the parties apart, decreases the likelihood of cooperation. You know, you, you get claims that somebody is a traitor. You know, Hillary Clinton faced a lot of criticism during the Democratic primary because she was seen as somebody that was, was too moderate. Um, you saw Marco Rubio get a lot of criticism on the Democratic side um, simply be, you know, he's a very conservative politician, even elected during the, the Tea Party movement. Um, but, you know, he pushed for immigration reform, tried to cooperate with Democrats and, you know, was was demonized um, for doing that. And so I think that, you know, you can't have, you know, you can't have ideological purity and cooperation at the same time. That's a really good point. And I, mean, I think one of the things that's gone out the window is uh, the fact that governing is all about consensus. And, uh, and so we have this ideological purity instead of a consensus-driven environment, which doesn't help move things forward, which then creates the fringes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so all these things kind of combine to make the uh, many people in the Republican Party not... Uh, very enthusiastic about their nominee. Um, in, in 1884, there was an interesting thing that happened, and that is uh, very similar, somewhat similar. So uh, James Blaine was running on the Republican ticket, and he was accused of some ethical uh, challenges, let's say, some bribery and things like that. And, and many of the Republican establishment just could not bring themselves about to vote for or support James Blaine. So they bolted the party, and they they publicly said uh, they were going to support the Democrat Grover Cleveland, which they did, which I think you can argue tipped the scales and made the difference. Because what happened in New York State alone, 36 electoral votes, Cleveland won New York State by just a little over 1,100 votes. Had the Republican Party been united, would Blaine have won the New York State and with it the presidency? Which is kind of a nice way to think about uh, so what, what's the impact, Michael, going to be of, of kind of some of these uh, Republicans who are leaving the party now um, on the election? How, how's that going to impact and what, what do you think the, the, the polling and electoral college looks like now? I mean, I think that you find a lot of Republicans in a pretty difficult position um, throughout, uh, throughout the country. So they have to make these difficult choices between supporting the nominee and then getting continually asked to defend, um, you know, the things that he routinely says, um, or you defect 
from Donald Trump. Um, you, you don't endorse him or come out against him. Um, and then you risk losing support for the people who are going to vote for him. Who's going to win, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike always sets me up during the lecture series when I um, get up to talk toward the end. He says that I'm going to tell everybody who's going to win. Well, you, um, you promised that I did January lecture, I made the mistake of telling people you, as the election got closer, yes. I would know who was going to win. <laughs> I actually feel pretty good about being able to predict um, at this point. But if you're listening to this after November 8th that I'm wrong, then I'll be pretty embarrassed. But it does not look... I. I I really have a hard time finding a path um, on the Electoral College map for Donald Trump right now. He needs to essentially sweep all of the, the swing states. And that is, that's just not the trajectory that the, the race is heading in right now. They just put um, Texas in the swing state category. Mitt Romney won Texas by double digits. Um, you know. A Republican is not going to win the presidency when, you know, Texas is up for grabs. That's not, that's just not something that can happen um, in this current environment. You know, she's in a unique position. She could lose Ohio, lose Florida, and she could still win the presidency. And, and I think that, you know, we are closer today to a, uh, you know, a big win, a decisive win than we are to, um, to a close uh, to a close election. I just, uh, the paths are shrinking for Donald Trump and the time is is running out. There aren't major events. There's no debate that's going to occur. Um, you know, absent some very surprising occurrence or some, you know, released emails from WikiLeaks, which, uh, you know, are clearly criminal on the part of the Clinton campaign. I just, I can't imagine a path. One of the things we're seeing uh, just in the last uh, week or so in terms of some of the polls is that uh, support for the Libertarian Party candidate, Gary Johnson, is going down. I mean, one of the interesting things might be to, to look at a state like Utah, for example. You mentioned mm. Gary Johnson. I don't think that he has much of a chance of winning any states, but but it might be interesting if, if Evan McMullen, who's on the ballot there, wins the state of Utah. I mean, he would be the you know the first um, the first candidate since the 60s to win since any 1968. 1968 to win any um, win any electoral votes and so that would be interesting and a big moment for third parties in this right. country so so it, it is a possibility so the the polling right now has McMullen who's a Mormon uh, running very strong and uh, so basically you've got a lot of Republican Mormons who are um, saying no to Trump. And they're seeing McMullen, who's running an independent campaign, as a possible alternative. So those two candidates, Trump and McMullen, could split the Republican vote, and Clinton could win Utah, which would be, I think that hasn't happened since 1964, I want to say, is when that happened mm -hmm. last. Mm -hmm. So um, lots of interesting things going on. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you, my friends out there, for listening. Purdy and our time will be debriefing on the election on campus on November 14th at 7 p.m. in McIntyre Hall, room 103. What We Do is brought to you by University of Puget Sound. Join us next Wednesday for another story about what we do at Puget Sound. And if you liked this podcast, rate us on iTunes.